chapter 3. I'll be reading Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Those words have led us into a four-week series here on justification. By faith alone, Christ's righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. This is week four. Let's pray. Father, again, is the miracle by your spirit we just experienced in singing as believers. Oh, what a wonderful term, believer. Continue this worship over your word in our midst to the glory of Christ Jesus, to the sanctification of your saints, and to the salvation of the lost. Amen. And amen. Back in the 1500s, the great reformer Martin Luther said this. When the article of justification has fallen Everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Justification is the master and prince, the Lord the ruler and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. I, I don't think that is an exaggeration at all. Because justification is God's answer to the most important of all human questions. How can a person, how can I be made right? To have God's good pleasure smile upon me, a sinner. It's crucial because God is holy and He is just and thus we are under God's just wrath in our sin and darkness if we have not been justified. And so either we must become Right with the law, which is the same as with God, whose law it is, or we will perish in just condemnation eternally. So over the last three weeks, what we have seen is that justification, it's an act of God that happens outside of us sinners where He is not doing something in us in justification. He is declaring something about us. That's what it means to justify, to make a declaration. You are righteous. You are acquitted of all guilt. It's a legal term. It's a legal term that declares that the ungodly, that one, and that one, and that one, and that one, are righteous before me. And God does it through Christ, therefore, in what Christ did. He didn't bypass justice. That's why God remains just while justifying the ungodly. And as we have seen over the last three weeks, that declaration, it rests not on you. It rests on the righteous, obedient life of Jesus of Nazareth. His active obedience, and it rests on His passive obedience in going to the cross, 
and suffering the wrath of God for all who would believe in him. Okay, now let's go back to the 1500s again. When Martin Luther, he got the bejeebies scared out of him and almost died by getting struck by lightning. And he fled into the Augustinian monastery to become a monk. His dad was very angry spending all that money on his education, becoming a lawyer. But Martin Luther, is all were being taught, if you listen to the official teaching of the church, which in the West, the Roman church, was that justification was not what I just said. It was a process. It was a process of becoming experientially, intrinsically holy. And therefore, it made sense, right? Because God cannot declare one just when that person is not actually just or, or righteous. And so the question is, how is that going to happen, Martin? And the way I was raised, it happens through the sacraments and the doing of them. And if you die too soon and you... You're not ready for heaven. There's a, a doctrine created called purgatory where you can have hundreds or thousands or ten thousands of years to atone for your sin and to work off your sin and eventually make it into heaven. The point is this, for Rome, it is through internal righteousness. Based on that, God declares one just. And Luther tried as a young man. He wrote this, reflecting back on his life. I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. If it had continued any longer, I should have carried my mortification even to death by means of my watchings, prayers, reading, and other labors. Well, he, he drove his superior nuts and finally he sent him off to the university to get his PhD in theology where Luther learned the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, not merely just reading from a Latin translation. And over those next coming years, he discovered that the accepted tradition within the Roman church and in Latin concerning justification was mistaken. In the Greek, the term to justify, dikaio, does not refer to the person in themselves performing righteousness intrinsically. It refers to God's declaration about them. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, that declaration is based on Jesus' atonement and his imputed righteousness. Then last week, we saw then that that gift that cannot be earned, that gift of righteousness, Christ righteousness, utter forgiveness, called justification, is received by the means of faith. Faith alone, apart from any works. And that brings us to this morning, where the question is this. What is real, justifying, saving faith? It's a crucial question because we all live in context in which we're born. And for many American evangelicals, faith is only a mental assent to certain doctrines, truths. 
In other words, it's something that we exercise at the beginning of our Christian faith by affirming as true statements like Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead. And then icing on the cake is to ask him to come into your heart. And then you're told, it's done. You're in. Even if there is no fruit that evidences that you've ever truly loved him for the next 60 years. That's the context in which I speak. So what is this faith? There are three elements to saving, biblical, justifying faith. It's like a pie. The pie is just one pie. And we're not talking about different face or three face. We're talking about saving faith. What is it? It's one pie cut into three pieces. And you've got to have all three. Or you're not justified. You're not saved. Even though you may be baptized. And you may think you are. So let's go to the first piece of the pie of faith. It is simply this. You must have knowledge. Some. In other words, faith without any content. What's what your faith in? What, what do you believe? I don't know. It's just blank. There's nothing there. That is, that's not faith. Before we believe into Christ, we must believe that Christ something. As Paul put it in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Well, you can't. If you don't have faith, you can't call on Jesus. And I did mean that on, I didn't misspeak. I, I meant to say it exactly the way I said it. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? The knowledge hasn't come. Got to have it. The gospel. How are they going to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone telling them? Teaching? To them. So the point is this, faith is not blind faith. That's not what biblical saving faith is. Faith has an object, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a special content that is true about the historical person of Jesus from Nazareth. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection with eyewitnesses. And it's true, whether a person's ever heard it or not. It exists, it's truth. It's true, whether a person believes it or not. And so the first piece of the pie of saving faith is the knowledge of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. There's a God. He's holy. You're not. You're a sinner. Wrath is coming. Judgment day is coming. But God has, as He promised for over 1,300 years, sent His eternal Son, the one uncreated to become a human being in order to live in perfect human righteousness on our behalf. And to die a bloody, horrific death where God turned away because he considered our sins to be upon him. That's, okay, that's it. I did that in what? 43 seconds. That's knowledge. Come to him as we heard this morning. Jesus said, come to me. You've got to have that knowledge. That's the first piece. Then there's the second piece of the pie. And that is, you must agree. <laughs> with that knowledge. 
Okay, that's part of what faith is. You don't have faith. You say, I know what you're teaching as a Christian and the gospel. I don't believe it. I don't agree that that's truth. Okay, obviously you don't have faith. You see, it's one thing to understand what biblical Christianity teaches about salvation in Jesus, and it's another thing to agree. I say, yes, absolutely. That message is true. In other words, it's very possible many people know the content accurately because they just listen. It's not that difficult of what the gospel teaches. But they're still lost because they don't agree with it. They don't believe it. Listen to what Jesus prayed in front of his 11 apostles on that night. Father, I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They know it. I agree with it. Yeah, that, that's true. And they have believed that you have sent me. So saving faith includes agreeing with what your mind understands about the objective facts of Jesus. What's offered in what we call the gospel. The good news of Christ. But that knowledge and agreeing with that knowledge is not enough. To be saved. There's still one third of the pie that you don't have at that point. Still missing. I grew up that way until I was 20, actually 19. And what I mean is this, it's going to make it easy. This is the way I wrote it in my spiritual autobiography. Throughout my childhood, I assumed the existence of God and that Jesus Christ was God who became a human being in order to die for sinners. I believed that He was the one and only Savior of the world. After all, that is what I was taught. That was my culture. I went to church. I took communion. And yet, I was not a Christian. Of course, I, I did not know I was unsaved. Most of us don't know we are unsaved until our eyes are opened by the miracle of new birth. And we awaken as believers who have a personal, intimate faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, if your faith is only an agreement in your head with the facts about Jesus and the gospel, then your faith at that point is no different than the faith of demons. As the book of James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The third piece of the pie is not merely a head agreement. It's a heart that has been captured. heart that sees that message and that Lord Jesus and the Holy Trinity is the greatest treasure to one soul. Jesus succinctly put it this way in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. 
And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Back in the 1500s when the reformers were discussing what saving faith is that these three pieces of the pie, much of theology throughout the Middle Ages and and during the Reformation was done in Latin. You had to know Latin, you went to the university, it's what you're taught, and that's what academics were done in. And they, they, they discussed these three pieces of the pie with these three Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia meant the knowledge. You've got to have that peace. Ascensus means you assent to it. Not, not go up with the sea, but you assent in the sense of agree with it. And the third piece is fiducia. Radical change of your desires, of your values. It's, in other words, heart trust. It's the eyes of the heart seeing not just what it says, but the beauty of what the gospel is. It apprehends Christ himself. Fiducia. See, even demons have noticia. They know what the gospel is. They know what it teaches. And they also have a senses. They agree to their shuddering that it's true. Demons hate the truth of the gospel. Demon agrees and knows what the gospel is. In that sense, believes. Yeah, Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. But a demon does not have saving does not have fiducia, the third piece. Knowing and agreeing with gospel truths are necessary to be saved, absolutely. But they're not sufficient. They're not enough. If that's all you got, it's not justifying faith. Believing is being satisfied with a drink, or with food, who is Christ to you. Found it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Believing in Jesus is coming to Him in a, in a way that, that satisfies your soul's thirst and hunger. That, that's what John Newton was writing about when we sang it this morning. Oh, the grace that taught my heart to fear. Where am I going to drink? To have that genuine fear of God and judgment. Where am I going to drink? And God saved that scumball slave trading ship captain. And oh, the grace my fears relieve. The third piece of the pie. And what once satisfied John Newton or the Apostle Paul when this happens is now distasteful. Believing is based on, to use another metaphor, it's based on God's miracle of giving to the sinner new taste buds of the soul. Eat and drink 
before that happens, the soul is satisfied with much of what the world offers. Then it happens, and now the world is losing its taste. Believing in Christ for justification is not merely an intellectual change. It's not merely a solving of a philosophical problem like a theodicy, the problem of if there's a good God, how can there be so much horrific evil in this world? It is not merely that it is that, but not merely that it's much more than that. It's the experience of being relieved of a troubled heart and a hungry soul. Those are the three pieces. Now, over the last century, there, there has been a large segment of the evangelical church world that has watered down this gospel of justification by faith alone. They watered it down to Jesus did all the work, we got all that right. Now the faith part. What faith is, is hear this, agree with it, okay, but believe this, it'll say, yeah, in your heart, okay, do that. Say the prayer, ask Jesus to come in your heart, and then you tell them, it's over, you're good to go, without explaining the three pieces in one way or another. And ultimately, it is teaching many people that they can be saved without actually ever walking with Jesus. In a nutshell, this deficient view implies that there is no necessary connection between saving faith and a heart change of loving Christ Jesus as one's treasure. Intimacy with the Father. Crying out, Abba. But instead... Faith is presented as a momentary mental assent to gospel facts. Because of that, a system has been developed that pushes people to make a decision for Christ. And some of you younger people, you've been fortunate. You don't know this, but many of us older, we've been in many meetings like this whether on Sunday mornings at the end of the sermon or in some type of evangelistic crusade, every head bowed, every eye closed. And, 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 you, and the, the more persuasive car salesman or, or preacher that you have, you know, bring them into feeling you don't want to go to hell. Don't you want to be saved, right? Then raise your hand, keep your eyes closed. And at the end, all you who raised your hand, come on up here. And then you lead them in the sinner's prayer. And now you tell them you're born again. You wonder why the polls come out when Gallup does a poll or Barna does a poll about born again evangelical Christians and what they believe and don't believe. This is one of the main reasons. They've never actually become a Christian, even though they have now been in church for 35 years. What that is, is a de-supernaturalizing of the gospel, of what faith really is. And that is deadly. It's a horror because it is deceiving millions. Right now, the world is concerned about getting inoculated from a virus. 
Give me the vaccine. In a watered down gospel Faith, just being that, and you're in. What it has been doing is vaccinating so many. Walk through life knowing, and they have an assurance. I'm okay. And there's no true, genuine repentance. There's no affection and love for the Savior. But we all have that little ticket in our pocket so that when death comes one day, you can present it right here. Get baptized, said the prayer. And that's the Christianity. And because this was the predominant gospel of the 20th century American evangelical church, out of it grew strange and unbiblical doctrines. And one of them, it just simply went like this. You can have Jesus as your Savior. And we want you to go on to step two and have him as your Lord. But if you have him as your Savior, you're in. So you've got these Christians who have Jesus as their Savior. And then you've got Christians who actually walk with Jesus. We call them disciples of Jesus. They've made Jesus the Lord. They've gone on to stage two, Christianity. So you have carnal, fleshly, worldly, loving Christians, and you have stage two Christians. And what has happened in popular evangelicalism is that faith in Jesus to be saved just got reduced down to the first two pieces of the pie. And what that does is makes the steps to conversion to Christ into growing churches humanly manageable now. Possible without the transformation of the eyes or the heart and the people. And with that, the pastorate changed. Trust me, I went to one of these main seminaries where it was everywhere. And that is, if this is true, this is humanly manageable, the pastor is no longer seen as a truth broker, the gospel and an expositor. But we need those kinds of people who would probably end up as CEOs of corporations we need to get them to run the church now. Because the stockholders want their shares become worth more. Faith to be justified. Here's the point. It's supernatural. It is totally a work of God. It's not merely a human decision for Christ. See, we can do notitia, get the knowledge. We can even say, yes, I agree with it. And, and let me just tell you, look, I, when I said as a, ch and when I read about my growing up, I wasn't faking it. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I say I believe that Jesus was God who came in the flesh and died for my sins. I actually really meant it. My head. We can do that agreement. But faith, all of it, that third piece, fiducia, that's a miracle. Faith is a human act, yes, of the mind, hearing, thinking about it, and of the mind. It sounds right. I agree with it. And it is the human response of the heart. 
See, that even happened in the deficient preaching of the gospel, just so you know where I'm coming from, because God saves. I mean, that, that's why, how many, who knows how many millions of times two persons are sitting in the living room watching Billy Graham in 1958 or 72 preach? Could be a husband and wife, could be two friends. And one of their, something happened. That is like the greatest thing I've ever heard. As they're both gulped down their 10th beer. And the other person has no clue what that guy saw. And for the next 40 years it works. This person's life is totally changed. And walking with Jesus. And the other person did not in one way hear what he heard. The Bible teaches that the human mind, here's the problem, is naturally blind. If you need to see in order to believe, it'll never happen. And it teaches that the heart, the human heart, is hard and it's dead. To that God is God and sovereign and perfectly holy and just and merciful and good and in absolute control. There's a heart, our hearts naturally are revulsed by that. Romans 1. Oh, we might be religious. That's why we will use religion to exalt ourselves. We do not like being little children who are dependent. And if that's the case, then, which it is, how will anyone ever be saved? We are justified by grace through faith alone. And we don't have it. That's why Jesus said, and again, he didn't mix up the order of his words. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you can't see it, you won't believe. He goes on to say, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He declared in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. The point, another way to say it is this. There is no justification without regeneration. Because there is no saving faith without regeneration. There's no saving faith without new birth. They mean the same thing. Regeneration, new birth. It is new birth. What it does is produces the third piece of the pie. Fiducia. He's good. Where'd that come from? At age 19, I was just going my own way. Sure think I should read the Bible for the first time in my life finally now. Why did I do that? The mercy, the grace of God. This is how the Apostle Peter writes it numbers of years later. as an older man to all the churches throughout the Roman Empire. He's saying to him, Christians, listen, what happened to you? 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, nothing in us, He caused us to be born again unto a living 
hope. And then he describes that further down in verse 8. Oh, believer, and though you have not seen Jesus like I, Peter, certainly have, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but you, be, you believe with the whole pie, you believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory and obtaining is the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Believing in Christ is the result of having the eyes of our hearts opened miraculously in order that we would see Him who is true and admire and love and find great joy in Him whom we see. Listen to how Paul says that. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. And if our gospel, that's the proclamation of Christ, the salvation message, and if our gospel is veiled, means hidden. You got to get this. It's not hidden in that the ones he's going to talk about here don't hear it. As Paul preaches it, they're right there in front of him. It's not hidden or veiled in that way. And even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled or hidden to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So that guy sitting on the couch, you don't believe that stuff, do you? All he can think about is the next party or the next dollar to be made. And this person says, yes, I do. You don't see this? Something happened. In order to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of God revealed in Christ. But then he says this, but you Christians, verse 6, but for you, what happened? Or what happened to this guy over on this side of the couch? But God, that's what happened. But God, who said, remember the opening of Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth, who said this, let light shine out of darkness. Defining God's creative work. That God is the one who has shined, shone in our, here's fiducia, hearts. For what? To give the light. To see. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That Light that sees and admires the glory of Christ is not a mere decision. You cannot decide to admire something. You either do or you don't. I know there are human beings who go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, look at it and say, yeah, it's cool. And they get back in the car because they're a little too cold. I don't understand. But you can't, I, you can't make them admire it. 
Something either tastes good to you or it doesn't. And most of you know, if you invite me over to dinner, don't cook shrimp or any other smelly fish product. And don't then, don't, don't, it's okay, just decide to enjoy it. Decide for it to taste good to you, Joe. Okay, I need a miracle for that to happen. It's not going to happen. Oh, my wife cooks fantastic chicken enchilada. My poor mother's lost soul. She never ate them, never would eat them when she was alive. Because she never would eat chicken. No, mom, just taste them is good. You can be saved. It's not a decision. And when we do evangelism, that just says, make a decision to taste my wife's delicious enchiladas as really good for you. We produce false Christians. It's not a decision. We plead with them. We tell them they're good. We're supposed to be evangelistic. Get in the kitchen and cook them and serve them up and even help them. Take a fork. Put it in their mouth. But now, wait and see. That's how you parents should parent your children. Don't inoculate them. Ever. From eternal salvation. Feed them the gospel. Read the Bible. Sing, live, and repent. And get it straight. Keep it clear. Pray. We can put it in the mouth, but we can't cause them to like those enchiladas. But through prayer and preaching, Look, God honors His Word. You will see many say, Wow, I never knew that was so good. God calls us Christians to be faithful, to cook the right recipe of the gospel of chicken enchiladas. It's not helpful if, well, they don't like onions, just take those out. They don't like the cheese parts, take that out. Put it over here. Too much salt, you don't want, okay, for some don't want that. And the sauce, which is the best. Well, you know what, some people don't like sauce, so let's put it over in the other corner of the plate. And now let's feed them and see if they like it that way. That is what a cook or an owner of a restaurant would do to get more customers. Want to please them all. But God knows what he's doing. And because he is the one who saves, and we can't produce the third piece of the pie, you can trust him if you just remain faithful with the truth, all the truth that God has revealed to us in the scripture. And so, as we're going to transition here, now, those of us who believe who love Christ. Oh, imperfectly, but it's real. Those words of Jesus. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Oh, taste and see that I am good. He'll never thirst or hunger. 
that's what we're doing in these next few minutes as we prepare our hearts. If you're a baptized Christian, feel free to take the cup and the bread. And we will eat them together. What we're saying is, I believe it is an amazing thing. No wonder Paul cried out. Oh, Philippians, I don't even now, day by day, decades into my Christianity, Philippians, I do not seek a righteousness of my own. All I want is to be found in Him. Then I'm real. He did that. I love Him. I taste and see that He's good so that I would have only that righteousness which is not my obedience to the law then nor now it is Jesus' righteousness which is a gift to me that depends on this faith being described it's come Father thank you I pray that you are saving and sanctifying your church, your people in the midst of our gathering at this very moment. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your own son, but you gave him and you delivered him up for all believers. And thus, you will moment by moment until death give us all things that we need to be faithful.